0: I don't think Palusik is the answer. Um, I think he's fine.
1: Welcome, Colin, to the World XP Podcast. It's a pleasure, and uh, I think it's only due after you just got your A license from U.S. Soccer, so congratulations on that. For those of you that do not know, I'm going to give, obviously, Colin to introduce himself, but... He's a coach at Loudoun Soccer Club and also an assistant for Loudoun United, which is, what, is it affiliate of D.C. United? Is that the official official term?
0: Yeah, they're a direct affiliate uh, in the USL Championship.
1: Well, congratulations, welcome, and why don't you tell us a little bit about, I guess you could start with how you got into coaching generally, but just give us a little bit of background so people have some context before we start going down in the weeds about U.S. soccer and all sorts of other things.
0: Yeah. So I'm 28 years old. Um, as Eric said, I have my USSF a senior license. Um, I was originally born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My dad actually is a swim coach and we moved around a lot, uh, to allow him the best opportunity to coach. We ended up in Virginia. I lived in Fredericksburg for about 16 years. That's actually where I met Eric at the university of Mary Washington. Um, I think part of the reason I got into coaching to begin with is because um, I was following my dad around when I was little, 5. AM every morning I'd get up to go to his morning sessions. Um, Didn't know much about swimming, but heck I could get in the pool whenever I wanted to. So I think after seeing him enjoy swimming for such a long time and coaching individuals and seeing them grow and then getting positive emails 15 years later from player or swimmers that he had taught lessons to. Um, I thought that was really special. And then my club coach, when I was 17, I realized I wasn't really going to play for college. I didn't really want to, um, but also I didn't really try that hard to play. Um, he actually got me into coaching when I was 17. So I've been coaching for 11 years now, almost 12. Um, and he gave me my first travel team when I was 18. And that was at uh, Fredericksburg area soccer association so since then I've been coaching for 11 years now
1: oh so by the time we met you were already coaching yeah I was (laughs) I was three years deep you were just the guy that was doing rainbows in the courtyard during pickup
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I uh by that time I had some licensing as well so I, I knew like I wanted to stay Somewhere in the soccer realm, like if I wasn't going to play, like obviously club soccer, you can do until like through college, but that wasn't enough for me. I wanted to help others like I have been helped because I really appreciated my club coach when I was 16, 17, and 18. I thought he helped me a lot personally as well. Um, so I wanted to kind of give back, especially to the younger kids that I was coaching at that time. So that's what I decided to do. And, you know, he definitely propelled me to do that, give me the opportunity as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. That makes sense. I kind of have the same sort of uh, mentality in terms of like wanting to give back a little bit. But I, in my head, I didn't really want to go through a club, so I kind of started out doing it's more one-on-one training. Shameless plug. There you go. Yeah, shameless plug. If you want to get your shirts, DM me on Instagram or anywhere, really. So it's all me. me. Um, but anyway, so I, watched, I decided to go a little bit of a different – routes the kind of the one one one-on-one or small group training route because I figured it would give me not the opportunity to impact more kids because it's not a team but to create a stronger relationship with the kids because when you have a team it's kind of hard to get those one-on-one relationships and really kind of make a not that you don't make an impact on, on people's life when you're coaching but it's a little bit just a little bit different so why did you Or have have you thought about doing that? And if so, why did you stick with the team sort of dynamic?
0: Yeah, I mean, in the area that we live in, um, people want one-on-one training. They want small group training. They want that individual um, session for their kids as often as possible. Um, When I look at the team game and then I think about individual sessions, I think – that individual sessions, for me anyway, belong more at a higher level. Um, I think the desire um, to go out and train should come directly from the kid. And I think a lot of it in this area, it's parent-driven. And I could be incorrect in saying that about everybody, but I think a large large portion is directed by their parents where the kids don't really have the desire. And I know when I was – 14, 15, 16, 17, and you are probably the same way, Eric. We went out into our driveway every single day, um, taking shots, doing skill moves, you know, juggling the soccer ball for hours. Yeah. And that's how we got better. And that then wanted us to get on a higher level like a travel team or whatever it looked like. So that's one reason I've kind of stayed away from doing individual training. I know it can be uh, beneficial to the players, but also – lucrative in a way. Um, Yeah. Unfortunately lucrative. I think, you know, parents are willing to, to pay a lot for that. But I also think like, especially when I have a team already, a lot of my kids that I coach do individual sessions. Um, And sometimes those coaches give advice that may be helpful, but it may be unhelpful to the coach in their team situation. Um, so maybe saying like, Hey, you've grown a ton in this area, you know, way to go. I think you should be moving up a team. Cause I heard your team isn't, you know, you're not improving with your team. And then they go back and say this to their coach and their coach is like, where did this come from? Why, yeah. why is this kid now thinking this all of a sudden is it your parents? Oh no, it's not your parents. It's your individual trainer. Um, but then obviously they can still grow with individual training. So, but I just. I, I tend to stay away from it. Um, yeah. Maybe in the future I'll get into it, but right now I'm good.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. I think it, it's a, it's important before we dive into the other stuff to kind of have this conversation, and have to touch on it a little bit because all of the things, the negative aspects that you've mentioned, most are, are things that I've been trying to be very conscious of mm-hmm. as I go about. Like I don't just take anyone and everyone. If the kid wants to be there, like yeah. I make sure the kid wants to be there. And then even the like lucrative stuff. One of the thing, one of the reasons why I got into it is because my experience at Mary Washington and then now, if I don't want to, if somebody really wants to play somewhere, I don't want money to be the reason why they can't do it. Like I want to give people the opportunity to do so. Um, and to summarize for those listening who don't know, um, went to Maine Washington tried to play on the team. Uh, didn't really cut it there and then end up basically at a trial with Latin United, which if you had asked anyone who had known me at the time that I was at UMW, they'd have been like, no shot. Um, so that was, that was one of the reasons why. And so I'm not in, in the, in that in that sense, if that makes sense to you. Um, but, yeah, but, and I, also, I also try and keep it game, the drills to be very game realistic. Um, I don't, Like, just dribbling through cones, just for the sake of dribbling through cones, for me is not useless, but yeah. for, that is a waste of my – like, if I'm going to train somebody, I'm not going to have them do that because I can just tell them to do that in their backyard on their own time. And if they're driven enough to want to come to training anyways, then they'll do it by themselves. They'll spend more on, like, game situations, techniques, different things like that
0: yeah i I had this one girl um who I was a coach of. She was doing individual training with a a coach, and she comes back to me and says, You know coach Colin, I'm training with this coach and he's teaching me how to have more game awareness I'm like really that's you know that's awesome. um how many people are in your in your training session with this coach? she's like it's an individual training session yeah <laughs> and I say Oh, so you're working on game awareness, which includes other individuals, by yourself. Yeah. Well, is it possible? Sure. It probably is.
1: Let me clarify. <laughs> I'll try and replicate a game situation with yeah. films rather yeah. than just – like if you're doing a passing, a passing drill or like working on a specific first touch – keep the passes that are going into the player at game speed, that sort of thing, rather than just having them slow through cones that aren't going to be there. Right. That sort of thing um, is, is more of what I meant. But, yeah, to your point, that's 100% accurate. You, like, you can only get that in, in a game or a team training session or setting where you, where you have the other bodies and defenders because at the end of the day, you can set as many cones up as you want, but in a real game those cones are other people who will move. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't quite work, but...
0: You do what you can in individual sessions. sessions.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, anyways, so yeah, that's kind of the spiel on that. That makes sense, though. So you ended up, um, you were helping at Mary Washington for a little while, yeah. and then you made your way up to Loudoun. Is that, is that correct and kind of moved on from there, walk, walk yeah. us through that sort of process from going to FASA through Mary Washington and then to where you
0: are now. Yeah, so I was kind of assistant coaching with Mary Washington my senior year, um, kind of a assist, or in a manager role as well, but I had more of a coaching role. Um, <laughs> during that time, I was also coaching at, as I mentioned before, Fredericksburg Area Soccer Association. And then after college I was really looking for an opportunity to coach full time. Um, and I tried to work within the same club. However, they had a large management turnover where I was supposed to get a position and then my best friend got the position over me. So I just, yeah, it was tough. Um, he's doing great now though. He's at Oregon state and they're ranked second. So can't complain too much. (laughs) Um, so I'm cheering them on from afar for sure. But after that, I went to a really, really small club because I so wanted to coach. It was called Commonwealth Football Club. They had started probably a year before that. And I was just rotating teams because I think I was the highest licensed coach at that time at that club. Um, and then I went to Stafford Soccer Association, another small-ish club in Virginia. During this time, I was uh, either selling Verizon Fios door-to-door um, I was selling cars, uh, new and used Mitsubishis. So I'll still, you know, vote for Mitsubishi though. They're pretty good cars, pretty solid, great warranty. Um, and then I also sold insurance. So I had, in my opinion, I had pretty terrible jobs that I didn't enjoy. Um, so my goal after selling insurance for an entire year, I was actually finishing a master's degree online um through ohio Uni- ohio university um it's in sports pedagogy and a focus of soccer coaching um and i did that through the organization united soccer coaches so i finished that program and i said i don't want to do anything else besides coach soccer and that's all i want to do so that entire year i was 2018 into 19 um i was just searching for any opportunity possible where I could coach full-time and be able to live off of that. And now there's really only a few clubs in Virginia that are able to um, give you that opportunity. So a couple clubs, Loudon was actually the first one that I emailed. I didn't hear back of them until the la- like five, six months later, which is pretty funny because they were the last ones I heard from as well. So Loudon an example, Arlington, uh, McLean, some of the larger clubs, I believe beach FC is another one. Um, and all of them were like, yeah, we can do this, this, and this, but we might not be able to do this. And I'm like, you know, you're close, but not, not quite. And then finally Loudon was the last one to reach out. And they're like, yeah, let's do this right now. I was like, absolutely. I've got a spot to live. Let's go. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. And I've been doing that ever since, I think this is year four now at Loudon soccer club.
1: So what's your role within Loudoun? Because you've also taken on the role within, with Loudoun United as well. So I would assume that between those two, you are fairly busy.
0: Um, Yeah, so definitely I was busy during the summer. I'm currently not hands-on with Loudoun United right now um, because being that busy and driving as far as I do, I live in Falls Church, and Loudoun can be either 30 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. So... Um, and DC traffic is fantastic. We lo- we all love it. Um, but yeah, so I coach two teams within loud soccer club, um, two girls teams right now. And then they give, they have extra opportunities for training that you can pick up. Um, I used to do the rec and the mini side. Um, and then I found out very quickly my first year, that's not something I wanted to do. <laughs> so I got into any travel program. I could, um, just any supplemental training to help supplement my income as well. And then that on top of training with Loud United, um, obviously my first year was the COVID year. Uh, so the season was really strange. Uh, we were doing Zoom trainings, whatever that looked like, individual trainings. But then this year, um, I was there every morning at 8 a.m. And then I would sit and wait until my Loud and Soccer Club trainings. Um, until I'd get home at like 10, 1030. So up at 6am home at 1030. And I was doing that five days straight. Yeah, really, really long days. Um, but I would say it was worth it. Good experiences. Um, obviously learning a lot and it gave me opportunity to sit in the Loudon soccer club office and finish my A license. Without that, I think I would have struggled even more because the A license was also all online. Um, That made it challenging.
1: I'm sure. That gave me like 18 questions. All right. Yeah, sorry. No, you're good. You're good. Okay, so the the first one, before we get to the coaching license stuff, when you're – so you've got like – you've got your two teams with – Loudon, Loudon, Soccer Club—they're yep. going up through the coaching licenses. What sort of? Because I remember—I don't know—I don't know if you uh, we were that, but at the at the team, uh, the Mary Washington Club team, we would go to um, the Fredericksburg FC complex when they were doing the coaching licenses and yep. be kind of like guinea pigs for them. Yep. And oftentimes the sessions were. There were decent sessions but I like in my head I was like I could make that up and do that. Which yeah. I which is a kind of is not meant to be a slap in the face for the people that spent all that time learning how to do it. Mm-hmm. But as you're going through these coaching licenses with and, and you have the teams, are you what I guess the question is what do you feel the benefits were? Like what were you learning? What sorts of things were you learning that you were able to implement rather than just something that you picked up from another coach somewhere or like you knew from previous, like your own previous soccer
0: league? Yeah. So I, it's, there's kind of a lot in that question. Um, I think the biggest thing is like, obviously when you're coaching and coaching is your job, you're always working on your coaching ability. Um, You know, how well can you make training sessions? How, how well can you make them realistic You know, are you putting your principles that you want to get across your team in the training session? Are you making the training session size realistic? How many players should be in there? You know, all those things you're thinking about every day and you're obviously always uh, continuing to develop that skill. I think, obviously, you're still working on that when you do the coaching licenses, um, but it's more encompassing than just the training sessions. So, for example, in the A license, there was... Leading the team, um, so it's more like psychological, that's conversations, team meetings, preseason meetings, um, you know, all the details of that. Uh, leading the player, so individual analysis, video analysis, individual conversations, functional training, um, and then creating like an individual development plan for him, both like through video but also through – analysis and then also through conversation um and statistics but obviously you can't really do that with the the younger groups then um you would obviously focus on coaching the game now obviously people i would i mean if i was a younger coach i'd say coaching the game is probably the easiest part but you can definitely tell once you get your licenses which kind of which level coach you're coaching against Um, And I'm not saying that to be uh, stuck up by any means, but game management is a massive thing. You know, how you're subbing in your players might matter a lot, but like how many adjustments are you making to allow, to give your team the best opportunity to win um, or at least to compete. And I would have said seven, eight, nine years ago that, yeah, absolutely. I can coach the game. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now I'm looking back today and I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I think I learned a lot of that, especially in my B license and my A license. I didn't do much of that in my C license. Um, but yeah, even so, as I mentioned, my A license was online and I didn't gain a lot of, I gained a lot of information, obviously, because that's what the course is. It gives you a ton of information and things to chew on, but through my B license, I gained a lot of experience through others. Um, So we would meet in Kansas city and we'd have three meetings there. Um, And you'd have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with 30 other coaches from all across the nation. And some weren't from Canada, some were from South America. Uh, And you just got to hear stories, how they ran sessions and understand exactly why they did that. And in my A license, um, I, again, I wish this was in person because you know, only coaching a professional team one year through COVID and one year, uh, you know, being hands off halfway through the year. Um, I was probably the least experienced there of all, um, and that's exciting for me to say. You know, I a guy in my class with, cool. works works with DC United. Another one worked with the um, the Cosmos until they shut down. Another one works with the Pittsburgh River Hounds. I mean, some big name people um, that I wish I could have sat down with and talked to and honestly talked their ear off with because I would have asked so many questions if I could. Um but yeah, I I think Yeah, there's definitely a benefit to to coaching licenses, even if sitting there right now you're like, Yeah, I could coach the game training sessions, easy. And then you are like. Oh, I actually need to prepare my players physically for the rest of the season and not just throw them in an 11-by-11 11 11 game every single day for training. Oh, I can't have five training sessions a week for three hours? I can't do two-a-days for the entire season?
1: Why? Yeah, stunning.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, I actually – one of my – real quick, Eric, one of my yeah, best good. friends is a football coach, and I hear all the time of how much they're training, what they're doing two-a-days, three-a-days, how long they're out there. And I, it kind of blows my mind how they periodize that and if they're doing it correctly because – and I don't know much about football. I genuinely don't like football that much. But because he coaches football, I like football. Um, and the answer I get from him a lot is, yeah, I don't know why we train so much. <laughs> and I'll make, maybe you should think about that a little
1: Oh, yeah, I, I often wonder, I was watching the Steelers game last night, and just, like, the culture, I was just, forgot what happened. Oh, yeah, somebody made a good play, and instead of, like, high-fiving, you just, like, head each other, Yeah. And I was like, these guys are nuts. And then I was thinking, like, to the practices and, like, the culture of, like, if you're hurt, and, like, in football, like, NFL football, it's like, nope, you're not actually hurt unless your, like, legs falling off or whatever. And, like, if you, whereas in soccer, like, you pick up, like, an inductor strain, like, I've been on minutes, like, kind of, not restriction, but, like, watching my minutes for, like, two months with an inductor strain, yeah. which is not, not at all the same on how they would deal with it, but to your point, though, about the A license, all the individual, like, development plans, the video analysis, it's like, stats and all that stuff, that's geared more towards the professional um, or college, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. They are bringing it into the youth game, though. Um, so now some teams have GPSs. Um, a lot of teams use video analysis now. A lot of coaches are trying to have individual meetings, which can be beneficial, but obviously with, you know, the the ages that we're working with, having having an individual, individual meeting with a nine-year-old isn't going to be helpful. Um, <laughs> like, I like soccer. Like, fantastic. Good job. Keep it up. Or even with like a a 13-year-old, they probably don't understand their feelings completely or how to express themselves. So, yeah, I mean, you need to know the player and you need to know the environment that you're in. If you're coaching at a smaller club with, you know, players that are looking to have fun, then individual meetings probably aren't the the place. Yeah.
1: One other thing that you mentioned that I, I found was interesting was talking about game management and now you realize that you didn't know anything. I was coaching uh, Fredericksburg Academy a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. We went undefeated until the States. And there was a couple of close games where – so the head coach on that team was – he knew soccer, but he was a teacher at the school and he was, like, interested in other things. So he let me kind of have a lot of leeway with, hey, I think we should do this during the game. There was a couple of close games that I remember personally saying, like, hey, I think we should – move this player, like, switch his side around, and then move this player to 10 instead of striker and kind of switch some things, and then we got a goal or some, something like that. And so I remember afterwards being, like, assist Coach Eric. But <laughs> what are the differences that you see in yourself now versus then, like, sort of – like, if you look back, maybe you don't have specific moments, but in your head you're like, oh, that was a really dumb thing to do. But, like, what – like when you say that, what did you mean by that and like to kind of expand we know what you meant, but like yeah. can, you, can you kind of expand on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I'm definitely not the person to pinpoint specific moments in my past history, so I'll just create a an example. sure um, you might be familiar with the term, but we use the term goal or uh joysticking players. I don't know if you've ever heard that, mm-hmm. um but basically, what that means is you're throughout the game giving the player each step of the way rather than letting them discover what should happen in the game themselves. Um, So for example, let's say little Timmy is playing on the right side and he receives the ball and he's got a teammate open down line. You're like, Timmy receive the ball, take a touch, play the ball down line. Now, Jonathan turn, sprint at the player, get it in the box. Um, You're not giving them any, any opportunity for thought process throughout the game. And then the next opportunity you do the same thing same exact play happens gets to timmy then goes to johnny or whatever his name was um and they do that over and over and now the one time you don't say something to him he gets stuck and he freezes doesn't know what to do doesn't know how to make a decision for himself and then turns the ball over and now they're in on goal because you've been joysticking that player half the season It's another thing with, like, trigger words as well. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, Eric. Like, a lot of parents like to say, shoot! Shoot the ball! And as soon as they yell shoot, boom, you you get a shot. Mm -hmm. Maybe from 35 yards out. Maybe from the corner flag, because they yelled shoot, and he's close to the goal. But is that the right time for them to shoot? Probably not. Um, So now, I, I would say that you know, before when I was 18, 19, maybe even 20, I was definitely joysticking players. Um, now I am typically sitting on the, the bench pretty quietly. Um, I kind of treat the, the games as like a test, whereas the training session is obviously my opportunity to teach them as much as possible. And I'm bu- much more active in the coaching process during sessions. Um, the only things that I'll really coach is when the ball is on the other side of the field and I might be talking to an attacker or defender, like, Hey, that was a good idea that you had. Here's another thought that maybe you should think about next time as well. Um, so you're kind of guiding the learning process, but then also um, forgot what I was going to say. Oh yeah. Making tweaks just on like positioning and where they might stand obviously you can change your formation and things like that and change players positions, but even saying like, Hey, their right back. Isn't pushing up at all. In fact, she's actually tucked in the middle as well. So can I get my outside left midfielder forward a little more? Can I note to her that this player is clearly making these decisions and this is the best way that we can uh, take advantage of the decisions that that player is making. So, and then, I'd probably tell for a youth game anyway, I would tell my most aware player, Hey, I've just given her this point. How can you change the game in this way? Knowing that this player does this. And she'd probably answer 75% of the time correctly. It's like, obviously you want me to play the ball here because this, this, and this, I would never have done that in my younger days. Yeah. Because you just don't, you don't really think about that. Um, You're kind of thinking about like winning the game at all costs but it's also important to help develop the players while trying to have a good outcome at the end of the game.
1: Yeah, definitely. That was one of the things that FA, the head coach, kind of, I'm not a joystick kind of person generally with life, Mm -hmm. um, but that was one of the things that having a high school team, having them every day was helpful with kind of, like you said, being more active in the training sessions and then, Because I felt like I had all that time in the training sessions to just during the game see if it worked. Um, Yeah, was interesting. I think I think yeah,
0: I think part of the reason we joystick as well is like Eric, me, and you were decent players in college. Like we played at fairly high levels in travel soccer, and you know if we stayed in shape, who knows what would have happened, (laughs) or we tried to try a little harder earlier in our years. Um, But I think seeing our players play. And not being able to change that ourselves is really frustrating, and I think that also translates to to other coaches and to, to parents as well. Um, but you got to kind of fight through that frustration and let them let them play and discover soccer on its own.
1: Yeah, uh, one anecdote for that I think when Thierry Henry was coaching Monaco, I think it was a couple of years ago, he was only in charge for like three games, and then. Yeah. I forgot exactly what the situation was, but in training, he was like, oh, why don't you just do this? And then he, like, pulled out some touch and then volleyed into the top corner, and the players are like, it's because you're Thierry Henry and you're not him. <laughs> <laughs> he just, like, couldn't yeah. understand why they couldn't do it. Um,
0: like, it's so easy. Come
1: on. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's, oh, it's nuts. Um, one of the other reasons though that you brought up that – actually, no, I'm not that. I'll ask you about that offline um all right so then you, you've gone sort of through that's kind of how you deal with the the club side of things like the younger kids when then once you get into the professionals who know like they they know what they're obviously they're professionals they know what they're supposed to be doing how do you tweak how you coach there because obviously you, you wouldn't coach 10 year old girls the same way that you would coach a 22 year old yeah who's getting paid to do this
0: Yeah. So. When I first joined the professional game, I was, I thought I was in over my head. Um, It's like, there's no way I could teach these guys anything. You know, they played at a higher level than me. They probably know more than me. But then you jump in a couple of training sessions and you say to yourself, they're just bigger kids. They make the same exact mistakes. Their thought process isn't exactly what it should be. Um, It's obviously quicker. It's obviously better. You know, they're making better decisions, but you can always see the best decision and almost nobody at that level is making the best decision all the time. Uh, I imagine it's harder to coach at the highest level for sure. Um, But they're just bigger kids. I think, um, I think part of the helpful thing that the coaching licenses has done for me as well is recognize one, the gather. Well, how do I word this? So obviously, we have this information in our heads as a coach. Uh, we know exactly what we want done within our team. Um, and now, as we're getting these coaches, coaching licenses, we figure out how to better translate what we're trying to get across to them in the simplest way possible um, and the most effective way possible. So obviously, for nine-year-olds, you have to really dumb it down. And you can't teach them too much. But you really have to think about it in the same way, like even though it's professional soccer and even though these guys are, you know, some of them graduated from Harvard or Yale or, you know, they probably got better grades than me, me in college. Um, <laughs> but you really have to try to translate exactly what you're saying without confusing them. Because once you confuse them or say things in a certain way, you start to lose um, their interest pretty quickly. And I, I would say you lose their interest even quicker than you do at youth soccer
1: interesting
0: why do you think that is Uh, because I think part of it is you know they're professional players and in that arena the arena that I was coaching in they've got another step above them they've got another level above them and they want to grow as quickly as possible that's their goal that's why they're there that's they're here to work Um, and if you're not giving them something immediate they don't see a purpose for you they don't, they don't appreciate what you're giving them. Um, I think that's part of the reason.
1: Did you feel that pressure at all when you were trying to explain stuff and you were like, damn, I've lost so-and-so, like he's not paying attention anymore? Or is it um, different? Or did you it, not realize it until you already had learned how to communicate it with them and then by that point you were kind of like more comfortable?
0: So in year one, I would say that I was, you know, probably the fourth assistant. And I definitely felt that pressure. I was nervous to say anything, even though they gave me the opportunities to. But I would still, you know, uh, have coaching points when the time was available. But, again, I, I wasn't the first or second or even sometimes the third to speak, whether it's because of my position or, or whatever. So I definitely felt the pressure. Uh, but we had good enough guys. And some of the guys were academy kids. So they, they were more willing to listen um, than some of the professional players. But going into the second year, um, I had a a different role and I felt much for whatever reason, I couldn't actually pinpoint the reason, but I felt much more comfortable. Um, and I felt that the guys really, they they listened well and took that information with a purpose. Um, now I don't speak different languages, so it was difficult to speak Spanish or French and give them information, but (laughs) I, I hope my hand gestures to them and. Have, using a translator was somewhat beneficial. Uh, but that's one aspect that's very challenging at at that level.
1: Hmm. I forgot about I forgot about the language barriers, especially with the with a team with like at that level. You would think most there's not really a language barrier because there's not really the, the money or the scouting sort of network to bring in foreign players. But yeah, get, so how how did you as the translators within this within sort of the and you can stop me and say, hey, we can't talk about this, but like, how do you deal with that generally in, in the professional world, I guess? I don't yeah, know. Did, so, they, did they talk about that at the licenses?
0: Like, so well? um, they, they touched on it, yeah. and basically they asked is, how does your club deal with it? Um, and it sounds like it's not a regulated system throughout each club, and it's pretty obvious, like obviously the best clubs are going to have translators for every language, or they're going to have coaches that speak multiple languages, or even players that can both speak both languages as well. Um, I think in the area that I was in, it's very difficult to to hire translators. Um, we may have gotten lucky with having people that spoke both languages, but then I also think it's beneficial to have those players that are looking to stay, you know, in America for a long time to take English courses. And that's something that we did. Did it help? Maybe. I don't, I couldn't say for sure. Um, I, they definitely picked up on one thing that we did do though, is have a like keyword sheet for like four soccer matches and even practices. So like, like play the ball down line or put it on the ground or play it in the air or man on, you know, we'd have keywords that everybody, even if you didn't speak the language, could at least learn that list and communicate with their teammates. And I think that that helped. And then it gave the other players a motivation to actually start trying to learn um, their language. And there's free apps out there that you can learn different languages, maybe not to a high level, but you can at least learn the language.
1: Gotcha, that makes sense for sure. Wonder, yeah, probably do it in all, all sorts of different ways all over the globe. You know in Europe, a lot of those players have been to like 18 countries, and so they're all like quadlingual.
0: Yeah,
1: quadlingual—that a word? It is now. Um, it is now. It is now. Okay, one more one more question for Loud United, and then and then want to move on to kind of how the coaching license process works, like okay. through that. So at the at the trial that. I was at, mm-hmm. you were able to run some of the sessions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to try to word this carefully because I don't want to get either <laughs> of control. You're good. Do you have a, like, you need to be within this framework for the session or was it Colin run this session, these aren't really our players and we don't like, were you were you really free, or was it within a, kind of a Loud United framework that you had to do that?
0: Um, I was free for those, so I could have ran it any way I wanted to. I was given full reign for that.
1: So, then can I ask why you chose to run them the way you did?
0: I got to remember what we did.
1: So <laughs> at least obviously not just uh, 11 on 11 days, Mm -hmm. but the first two days it was, uh, we would warm up and then it would be some sort of passing pattern and then like a small sort of rondo or transition type game. um, And then we'd move into kind of playing.
0: Yes. So we did it based off of, and this was a conversation that I had previously with, you know, some of the staff members as well. We wanted to base it off of how we typically have our training sessions Um, they're pretty similar each and every day. I can't get into it too much, but we basically wanted to see who could handle the, the information that we were giving and translate that even to a simple passing pattern. I mean, you'd be surprised how many players want to be professional, but can't do a passing pattern and know the reason why. I mean, you were there, you like, it, it, it kind of blows your mind a little. Um, so yeah, I think that actually was a lot of the process of why the sessions were the way that they were, gotcha. and that I mean, I think it was effective as well.
1: Yeah, I think it worked. You, at least I was able to see probably day one, which which were the ones that we that you guys would maybe consider, and then which ones were the ones that just that wouldn't be able to to make it. And it was after almost, not even, not even the first session, probably halfway through the first session. So, yeah. um, right, that was more just out of my own curiosity. Um, okay, coaching licenses. So, yeah. last I remember, cause there's, I think, I don't, because it used to be just, did it start at F or E? I don't remember. And then they changed to grassroots and then like 4v4 and 7v7. So, I, mm-hmm. I have my grassroots and 4v4, I don't remember, if I my 70s or not. but anyways, so they changed it. so what is sort of so like walk us through the the whole process because you're at a, which logically would be the end, but walk us through that the u s soccer sort of coaching process education yeah process
0: so basically, when I first got my e license, um I was eighteen years old. And then obviously it was linear from there. So it was your D, your C, your B, and your A. Um, you could take your E license when you are 16. I think your D license you had to take when you were 18, minimum 18. Uh, and then when I took my D license, they changed the system to then having an F license. And the F license was online. And obviously U.S. soccer is going through a ton of changes still. And I mean, for 11 years, they went through, as far as I know, three, four changes already. And they're currently changing the system now again. Um, So they had their F license, which was online. And funny statistic about that really quickly. A ton of people in the U.S. took their F license course because it was free, I believe, or like $60 and it was online. The amount of people that have their F license is the same amount of people that have their A license in Germany which is kind of mind-blowing. I believe it's because of how cheap or accessible the licensing is. Not 100% on that, but that is a statistic that I heard when the F license first came out. Pretty funny. Um, So then I got my C license when I was 21. So I was like running through these and I reflecting back, I kind of was like, I probably should have chilled out a little more just so I can, use the experiences more than just the licensing, I guess. Um, But after my C license, they did a massive overhaul on like, I, I will say that the D license and the C license were fairly hard to pass. Like the instructors were looking for any reason to, to fail you. And not in a bad way. They just wanted to pass good coaches. And you had to be a good player to get your C license at least. And it's unfortunate because some people who wanted to get their C license, you know, whether they had a disability or, um, you know, they couldn't run anymore or were just out of shape they couldn't get their licensing. Um, what's so the obviously reason, they,
1: what's the reason for that that you can't demonstrate stuff. Correct. For, yeah. Okay. They wanted
0: you to be able to demo, which makes sense. Um, but that also gives like a, a one up on the people that played at a, Professional level, it's like, oh well, you obviously can get your A license because you played at a professional level. It's not always the case.
1: Yeah.
0: Sometimes, um, that's obviously something we're still de- dealing with now in the U.S. and even, you know, across the world. I don't know if it's true, but I think the Danes now the the coach Manu, is that right? Is he really? I don't know. Did I saw did, a did
1: Ole get fired? I, didn't I don't know. know.
0: I saw hey, I saw a post. I don't know if it's true. Might have to look that up after.
1: Gosh, I could have just thrown that, some hot news. Right so, now.
0: Yeah, you can look that up while I keep talking. Right, keep going. <laughs> um, so they did a ma- major overhaul in, like, how you're supposed to set up your training sessions, what they expect from them. Um, so before, it was you're supposed to run a small technical activity, uh, which is called the warm-up. And then you would do, like, a possession, kind of a possession-based activity to n- no direction. So which was kind of game realistic. And then you would expand that to a directional game. And then you would play a game at the end. Then um, they changed it where the younger ages would do something called play practice play um, where they would obviously play for the first 15, 20 minutes of practice. Then they would practice on certain um, aspects of the game that their coach wanted them to grow in. And then they would play again and the coach would be more involved in the specific aspect that he had just coached, which makes sense. Um, and then in the older, and the B and the A license, they started doing something called, obviously, we do the warm-up or it could be a technical activity as well. And then we would do the orientation phase and the learning phase. Long story short on that, orientation phase is basically, you'd only use this if you're coaching against an opponent you had information on. So, for example, they play this system, and this is how they defend. How do we solve that problem? And break them down. So, first, you create that problem for your team. Um, so, you create the problem. Let's say they use a five-back system, whatever. Um, how are you going to break this down? You don't coach your team at all during this. You're only trying to create the problem. Once the problem's created, and you have um, failed so many times. Then you go into the learning phase, and now actively coach your team in how to break this down and how we can be successful. Um, And then the the instructors throughout the licenses are now like much more; um, they're seeking to pass people rather than to to uh, to fail them. well even the so now they just changed the whole system they said hey like we need to pass people like we we can't and they wouldn't just pass people to pass people they're like hey can you revise this assignment or can you do it in a different way and you would get three opportunities to revise it so like nowadays it is normal to not pass your first assignment so like And that's because that they're trying to see your growth from your first assignment to your second assignment, to your third assignment, the third time you turn it in rather. Um, And I think that helped me a lot. If anybody passed their A license without any revisions, (laughs) I would say the instructor did it wrong unless that guy was like extremely high level, but I think it's necessary. Um, Yeah. Just drastically different from licensing before and licensing now. So quick last little points. They used to just have the A license and you used to have it to renew that every single year. Recently really? they, yeah, you had to renew it every single year. I think you had to go to Florida, Bradenton, not sure. Florida or Arizona for your A renewal. And then now they have an A youth license and an A senior license. And they're two different courses. You can have both licenses, but typically people take one or the other. And now they have a pro license. Um, I took the A senior because that's the arena that I eventually want to coach in. And I had the opportunity. You have to have, you have to be put coaching in a professional environment. And I had that.
1: For the senior one? Yeah.
0: So you can't take the senior unless you're coaching in a professional environment or a high level college environment. So now they have the pro license. I believe it's 15 grand <laughs> to take the course and, you have to be coaching. You have to be a staff member at a pro environment as well. And I'm not paying 15 grand until somebody else is paying it for me. Yeah, no
1: shot. So, is there a big difference between the senior one and the pro one? Or, I, mean, you don't, I mean, you haven't taken the pro Yeah,
0: I wouldn't know, but I've heard, like, I have, I know instructors that also coach in the pro, and it's just a different level. I mean, there's so much more depth that I could have even went into in my A senior course, and I can see that, and they, the instructor showed me that. Now, do I know how to do that fully? Absolutely not. Like I'm, I'm not there yet, to be honest, because um, I haven't experienced everything that I need to experience in order to get there. But yeah, there's it's like the difference between the A and the B license was massive. For example, my game model, it's how your team's supposed to play, and their style of play, like you know all that. For my B license was. 16 17 slides which whatever you know you can have a lot of information on those slides um and i passed the assignment for my a license i had 77 slides for the same assignment just a b license to an a license um Please. yeah so, and um... i <laughs> i heard one guy had 400 slides and i'm like i don't know how i would have done that and maybe that's something I need to learn. I, I need to have four hundred really, slides like next time.
1: Four hundred slides is excessive.
0: It's just so much detail. You're almost giving your players a playbook, I think.
1: But so once you get down to that level of detail, you have something for like literally every single situation. I, honestly, that that's what happened. I imagine. Because but of, I, I,
0: I, I don't like that. I neither. personally. But I, I, I would guess. Um, Who's the Atletico Madrid coach? Simeone. I, I I bet you Simeone has that.
1: Probably. He seems like the type of coach that would have he, that. he really
0: does. Like, his teams are so organized, and they know exactly what to do, and they can beat teams consistently at a high level. And I, I imagine it's because he has that much detail. And I think I have something similar to, like, Jose Mourinho's, and his is pretty long as well. Yeah. Um, think it's somebody who like analyzed his play and guessed what his is i don't
1: think it's actually his yeah so when you talk about going in depth what comes to my mind anyways is at a certain point you are taking uh i would say and you know this from coaching trials and other things that when when you tell players to go like express themselves or that sort of thing once you get down to a certain level of detail you start taking that away I, is that is that a outsider's view, or is there some truth or some nuance? Or how how do you view that? Because yeah. you said you also wouldn't want to have the the four hundred or not that number of slides.
0: Yeah, I think first of all, for me, I think defensively, I want it to be very concrete. Mm-hmm. Like there is a right and wrong answer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, offensively, I think that part of the reason we should score goals is because of the creativity of players we have. Obviously, if we don't have those players, um, we can't do that. And obviously, we have to change how we play. But I think in order for the team to function well and to for them to function um, consistently, you have to have a right and wrong answer in certain areas. So, for example, like you don't want a player playing a deep cross you know, like 30, 25 yards out to one player in the box. That's near post. Like you would never want to do that. So you want to guide your players for the correct runs. You want to figure out um, how to get your players into better areas to cross from. And then you want to give them, for example, percentages of where exactly they need to play the ball and why. Um, Because the higher probability to score. And how are you going to get it down the field? Well, you've got to define that for them because if you've got a center back that wants to kick the ball, but your team is very technical, why would you do that? Right. Um, but he sees a pass and a player running down the field, but that's only going to happen one out of 50 times if not everybody's on the same page. Um, so then with the game model and the game plan, you then – you have to have that before, like the season even starts. You then are each and every day using your principles, like your main focus, and then breaking it down even more throughout the season, so the players understand exactly what you're expecting, or is expected of them, rather.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, going back to the the near post cross example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when I would. Like when you give me that example and you're like, well, we would tell them that that's not a good idea because of whatever in my head, I was like, yes, that's not, that's a, good not a good idea. Why would you do that? Anyways, like you, like in my head, I'm like, I wouldn't need a coach to tell me that that's a dumb idea. Yeah. So I think a lot of
0: it. Go ahead.
1: So I, I guess the question more just for, so for generally for those listening, what you said makes sense. But for me personally, I guess what I'm asking is, how how deep does the level of detail go to, like, to, because like I said, a lot of the things that you mentioned, like, if I'm watching a professional game anyways, you know, like, MLS game or whatever, I can see, okay, that wasn't the best decision, and this team wants to play this way, and that makes sense, and then like you said, the center back wants to go long, it's like well if you have a technical team you're just playing to your team strength so that's like for me that that makes sense but then if he sees that ball then you would want him to have the license to play it in my head that's how I would view it so kind of walk me through like because you had all the education and I'm just not armchair fanning but like or armchair coaching but like walk me through like where where would what sorts of things would I like, if we were to watch a game together, you'd, and I would give you my idea, and you'd be like, that's wrong, and here's why. I guess is why I'm asking. Does that make sense, kinda? Yeah, of? it
0: does. So, like, there's obviously a ton of aspects that I can imagine you're it into. So, first of all, you're going to think about what area of the field you are in. Mm-hmm. How did you receive the ball? Did you win it over a turnover? Did you play it out of the back? Did you play it from a goal kick? um did you win it off a corner kick how many players do you have forward how high is their line are they playing a a high press are they dropping deep are they having a mid block how many defenders do they have what formation are they playing um what what are they looking to do um and I, i imagine the the game model that had 400 slides includes all of those things if we're playing this formation, this is what we should be looking to do because typical weaknesses are going to be this and this. If a team is in this formation and play the high, like a high press, gang, a gang and press, then we need to make sure we're doing this, this and this, and we should be looking for this as a center back. Um, and I imagine, you know, when you're coaching at the highest level, you need to have that because each team you're going to play is going to be drastically different and it's going to be high level. Now, maybe at the USL level and maybe at the even college level, like not every coach is going to do that. And I would say the four, three, three is a very typical formation teams are going to play either that of three, five, two that's kind of in right now. Um, so you could probably coach against that. And then if anything else comes up, you can change per that formation in that team. But at the highest level, you really should be coaching against most formations and most styles, um, but then there's obviously. Like, uh, to me, the way that I like to think about it, I don't want to change how I play. Um,
1: right. You I, know, I, I, when I, 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 was, I was the same.
0: Yeah, I want to continue to keep possession, move the ball side to side, and play around them. I'm not worried about going through them or over top of them. I want to play around them specifically. Um, In order to do that, I need to have players that are proficient in one-versus-ones. And then once they get into one-versus-ones, I need to have players probably – I'd like to have a box-to-box midfielder as well, so like an 8, a 10 who's creative, and then a 9 who can just finish the ball. Um, But, you know, if you don't have one of those pieces, it changes. Um, Or when you make a sub, it changes. So, I don't know. There's there's a lot to it that I'm still figuring out as well. Especially when I heard there was a 400 page report.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's that's insane. But all those like, it's so difficult for I feel like as players to understand everything that a coach, like every situation that a coach would lay out. Because as a player, you kind of take you have you take all that information and like that, and that's the decision. And you don't sometimes know why you're you're doing it I feel like sometimes as a player, but one other thing that um, I've found or I've actually never asked anyone to coach this is when you're coaching at like a youth level and you like let's, let's say some of these kids want to play in college and you've got you're you're coaching mm-hmm. within the system like the way that you want to play, but the college that they want to go to because of grades whatever program major they have something like that plays a totally different way at what point do you do you kind of obviously you wouldn't adjust the whole team for one for one kid but well i don't know maybe not maybe yeah obviously. i
0: was going to say why not
1: well if, because if, if you've got other kids that are going to a college that maybe has a different system like you can't play 11 systems so mm-hmm. how do you kind of Uh, take all that into consideration and what how would you approach that situation
0: yeah I think well first of all coming from a college coach perspective and obviously you know I have very little experience in that Mm -hmm. um, I, I think about it two ways like does my system change each and every year based on the players that I'm bringing in because um, I'm not just going to bring in the best players, but I'm going to also bring in ca- players with good character that want to play and want to continue to play throughout their four years. Right. I don't want a bunch of one and dones that are you know, frustrated with playing time. Um, so, yeah, I could change my system uh, based on those players that I'm bringing in. But also, if I want to stick to a system that has been in the program for years, um, and for example, you know, a lot of professional teams like to have similar systems that they play throughout their academy and into their professional team. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to look at those players.
1: No, for them, that makes sense. I mean, for you as the youth coach, if you have a player mm-hmm. that wants to go there and a player that wants to go there yeah. and one guy plays like.
0: Yeah. Then, well, the thing is, I would then have the conversation with the kid is why do you, one, have you seen this team play? Mm-hmm. Why do you want to go there? do you understand that they don't play the system that you would fit in well? And then I would have the conversation. Do you want me to try to, a lot of it has to do with the conversation. And frankly, like you're trying to get your kid to play in college and that's what they want to do. And that's their goal. You're going to do pretty much everything you can for them. And hopefully that fits your system even to a little where the other kids show as well. Now, I wouldn't say always, but typically you can, show which co- you can see which colleges are more interested than others. Sure. If this college is very, very interested in this particular player, then I'm going to make her look like the star, if at all possible. And frankly, maybe the other kids won't show this game. But if that college is specifically there for them, rather than a bunch of colleges just watching a game and looking at general players, I'm going to – nine times out of ten, keep that player on the field as much as possible and try to give her as much success as -hmm. possible. But I think the conversation is important as well because if she's not going to fit the system and the only reason she wants to go is because of soccer and not because of anything else, I think it might not be the best fit.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And that was something that I definitely at that age hadn't even thought about because I figured – at that time, I'm like, okay, I'm not the fastest, but I'm fairly well-rounded as a player. I can be malleable and kind of with the right coaching kind of fit into multiple systems was, was how I thought about it. Um, and then looking at that recruiting class specifically, there was a lot of technical technical players that I thought um, that I fit in well with. And it turns out that not a lot of us stuck around. So I, I would... I don't know, like at that age, that's a a difficult thing, I think, for the player to realize is
0: happening. It's almost almost impossible. I mean, I I would say a lot of those people aren't mature enough yet. Mm. And that's why you kind of need somebody to step in and have that conversation. And hopefully it'd be your coach, if not your parent. um, Or maybe even their coach. You know, you would hope that their coach also understands that this player doesn't play in the system and it would look different. Um, one of my best friends went and played at UVA. The the first couple of games he played left back <laughs> and he was a striker his entire career. Um, played striker for a while after a couple of games and then fully got transformed into a, a left back. Um, it worked out in the end, but that's probably something he wasn't expecting to begin with, or if it was 100% uh, George had that conversation with him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Also, that transfer from attackers to wingbacks is fairly common. I think happened to me, happened to a bunch of people I know. I, I heard, heard, I
0: heard, I heard a saying recently, um, and I, I'm trying to think about it, if it's true or not. But typically, um, the best players going from the top of the formation to the bottom of the formation, so forwards, defenders. If you're a decent forward, you'll probably move back in lines the higher level you get. Mm-hmm. If you're at the highest level, you will never move lines. But the higher level you get at your average or a little above average, you'll always move back at least one line.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I think it's true.
1: I, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that because you still have all the technical, like, on balls like, skill that the coach, once you jump up the level, would want in defenders. I don't know – I'm not sure how true I think that is for center backs specifically, because that's kind of a different.
0: Well, they would they would just move out.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, I'm trying to think of the most recent players that played center mid and then went to to center back, like at a high level.
1: Connor Philly is the only one that I can think of off the top of my head.
0: I think there was a, a guy from Chelsea as well, wasn't there? Oh, Chalaba? Yeah. 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 Um. Who else? That's all all I can think of right now. But I I think, you know, obviously, so if you're in the defensive line and you're a center back and you're a little average, then they're going to move a center. Because you obviously want a distributive center midfielder to play center back if he's a decent size. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think you just have more qualities higher up the field that would then fit in the the lower in the next line. And I guess that makes sense to me.
1: No, also... it makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. The the thing that's weird for will say for me specifically was I moved back because and then I moved back into midfield. So now I'm playing a lot of center mid. I'm going, I went from left wing to right back to six. Yeah, and I played both six and uh, right back. But that one one last sort of subject that I want to talk with you about and it kind of branches off the development players going to college that i think when we went to mexico when well, we played four different teams and they all played basically the same way because that's how and i i don't know how this is in, in other countries but from my understanding every country sort of has a similar sort of style that they play that all the teams play kind of in that way and mm. so generally speaking it's fairly simple to move between teams because you understand, like, the basics of that style. The U.S. does not really have that, and also, instead of academies going into clubs, we go into colleges, and then kind of, I feel like a lot of people slip through the cracks, and I would be curious to get your thoughts on that, given that you helped out at a college and then where one of those were you were you there when um oh what's his name jake was there lovinger
0: um name sounds familiar but
1: he's playing um for a NISA team in North Carolina now okay so basically I guess given that you had experience at both college and professional level And seeing some of the guys that you coached at college and then players at at the professional level, what are your thoughts sort of on the, like, as a, in terms of U.S. soccer as a whole, like the national team, players slipping through the cracks, like that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on how we have things structured currently?
0: I, I think it's kind of a loaded question.
1: Okay, um, fine. I'll inter- make a caveat, though, because the college game has positives in terms of um, getting kids educations, right, and yeah. free education, and if they're not going to play pro, they have an avenue into the real world that some of the people in Europe don't have, because all they do is play soccer, and then they get released, and then they have nothing. So, including I, that caveat.
0: I, I think I'm going to say this Honestly. Um, I think college soccer in the and I I think most people would agree, college soccer in the U.S. is broken. Um, I don't really think it helps out anybody, to be honest. Players are playing for three, four months out of the year, and then they might be training during spring season and playing two or three games. Whereas overseas, the best players aren't even going into college. They're finishing high school online. They're starting to play at 15 and 16. Now, obviously we've got some of that here, but those players don't need to go to college. They're already playing at a high level. The players that aren't playing at a high level in other countries are coming over here to play in college for, you know, to to hope to to make it to the next level. But then our next level players that sorry, our college level players that are a good enough level that to win the national title or whatever. They're getting drafted, but aren't playing for the first team. And I think that's, that says a lot um, in and of itself. But I think part of the reason is, one, soccer in the U.S. doesn't have a deep history yet. Um, I think it's going to take time. I, I definitely think it'll need changes, not just time. Um, I, I can't say for certain what those changes are necessarily. I think our country is is huge, and I think it's obvious to say that people will slip through the cracks. And I think part of the reason for that as well is because it's still not the main sport, not even close. I mean, for sure, football and basketball are still in front. I think we might have surpassed baseball, um, but I know that youth soccer, like even when they start at five, six years old, I think it's the highest levels ever. And I think it's still per- perpetually growing. Um, but until we get to that point, we can't even think about people slipping through the ca- cracks because our best players are playing other sports. Our best athletes are playing other sports. Um, I, I like generally, I like the NCAA, but it's not right for soccer. Um, and especially when we have 15, 16, 17-year-old kids that are ready to play a professional game but they can't because of um, laws in the U.S. I think they're... So, for example, I think this was with... Um, who's the the outside back that played for Newcastle?
1: <sighs> oh, Yedlin?
0: Yeah, so Yedlin. Um, I believe he's from a club in New Jersey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And typically, clubs that give their player, like have rights to their players, and then give them to higher level teams and they get signed. Typically, they get fees passed back to that original club, their parent club. He, and like many other US players, aren't able to give those fees back to the club because of laws in the US. Um, and that sometimes can be millions of dollars. Now, for him, I don't think it was that much, but I think it was. I can't say for sure, but I don't think it was even in the 100,000. But that still means a lot to smaller youth clubs that are trying to develop and to grow.
1: Yeah, um, so I think there's a lot
0: wrong with the U.S. I think <laughs> if you want me to talk about the U.S. team really quickly, Go for it. they make me nervous. Um, I, I This is a hot take. I don't think Pulisic is the answer. Um, I think he's fine. I think there's other players that will become better than them and have a greater legacy um, will we make the World Cup? Yes, will we get out of um group stages in the World cup?
1: No <laughs> you know, regardless of if we get a good draw no shot
0: no. I'm, I'm saying it now I, like I let me tell you I cried when we were out of the last World Cup I cried because that was a very very low point for U.S. soccer when we thought we were growing even though we were using very old people to yeah. help us qualify
1: looking um, back on that team not that we should have qualified obviously but like when you look at the the lineup for that game it was just like what kind of lineup was that I the know.
0: average age was I think 30 29, maybe, and tip, like typical teams are going to have 26, 27.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: that's like massive.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a big difference.
0: Um, I think Clint Dempsey was in that side too, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, Michael Bradley, Joe Altidore, the, whole, the usual suspects.
0: Crazy. Uh, yeah. U.S. soccer, it's it's a mess, and I think it's really difficult because the U.S. is so huge, and like as you were saying you can tell like how nations typically like to play. Back in the day, England used to be known for their long balls. Obviously, Spain is known for tiki-taka-type soccer, very small technical players. Germans are typically bulkier. They like physical play, similar to the Dutch, I believe, as well.
1: The Dutch um, are technical as well. But
0: yeah. Um, so, but so then
1: Football and stuff, play and all that.
0: Exactly. And then you think about the U.S. Well, one – we have so many different nations within us, but then you can actually kind of look at different regions and see how they play. Um, I would say in the East coast. Anyway, I would say most of those clubs like towards New Jersey, Pennsylvania are very, very physical. Mm-hmm. Um, They're, they're typically bigger. Um, whereas you get to Maryland and Virginia, there's kind of a safe balance between technical and physical, And then you go down the East coast to like Georgia and Florida, and those players are technical masters. Um, And then obviously California is a different beast, and I couldn't even speak in the the middle portion of the U.S. uh, because I don't know. Yeah.
1: now that you mentioned that. I remember playing. We were at uh, the Castle Showcase in North Carolina, and we played – um, a team from Florida. They were super good on the ball, kept a ton of possession, but we had a couple fast, big guys up top when we ended up winning the game, like 2-0, I think, or something yeah. like that, because they kept the ball all the time, but we stayed compact, and then they weren't able to deal with us on the counter. I remember that. But um, in, t- in terms of the U.S. team, though, if not Pulisic, Reina, I not don't, I don't really – because I watch and I I feel cautiously optimistic, I would say. Not for this World Cup coming up, but the one in 2026. as all those guys who are 18 now will be hitting their mid-20s. And I feel like if we're going to do something, that would be the time to do it. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. What do you think, though? I don't
0: know. I, I, I haven't seen, uh, what's his name, Musa.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I haven't seen him enough yet to have an opinion on him. I like McKenny and his character. I think he's a solid player, and I think he could keep keep pace with—I wouldn't say the world's best, but definitely like the above-average player in the World Cup. Um,
1: yeah,
0: I think Gio is class. I think yeah. he's really, really good. Um, I, I just think I don't think Pelusic is the leader or even the face that the U S needs. Um, I think there's different leaders that we can have that would have a better influence. And that might be some of our defenders our center backs. Um, who's the guy from Nashville? I like him a lot. Zimmerman. Yeah. I like Zimmerman. I don't know if he'll make the team though. Um, Zimmerman's good. I, I, the guy, the goalkeeper from new England's good as well. Um, I don't uh, know much. Uh, he's yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just I need to find these guys a little more and, and research them because it still makes me nervous. But I think Reina, obviously Pulisic, but, like, McKenney as well. Um, and I want Tim Way to get back on the team.
1: Yeah. And he's, been, um, he's been hurt a lot, but I think he's been playing a lot in France.
0: He's at Lille right now, right?
1: Yeah, and they won the league last year. Yeah. So he's getting some minutes, which is – for a team of that quality is good, Champions League team. Yeah. Let absolutely. me ask you let me ask you this though. In terms of the center backs specifically, have you are you before I ask you the question, are you well read in on kind of the center back situation or not so much?
0: If you name them,
1: yes. I, say, I mean,
0: I know I know we've got Brooks.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: Zimmerman. Yeah.
1: Miles Robinson, yeah. Chris Chris Richards, and Mackenzie, a guy that plays in Belgium.
0: So I like um, Adams. I like Zimmerman.
1: Tyler Adams. Brooks. Yeah. He played six, kind
0: of. What was the other player you said? Uh, we
1: Brooks, Zimmerman, Miles Robinson, he plays for Atlanta. Uh, Oh,
0: Robinson, sorry. Chris Richards, like... and
1: McKenzie.
0: I don't know Richards. When I saw McKenzie play, I thought he was fine. I, I mean, I think we all know this. <laughs> we don't have perfect center backs. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Zimmerman to me controls the field the best just from what I see on TV. Obviously, you know, I don't coach him, um, but everybody else seems to have mental lapses from time to time. And I would say if I were a coach coaching against the U.S., I would say go directly at their center backs as quickly as possible. <laughs> that, I mean, that's, I, that's our weakest position. I mean, that and our, our nine, our striker role. Yeah. We don't have a goal scorer. I was hoping for Josh Sargent, but I, I want to see Daryl Deke again.
1: Yeah, might do too. And then what do you think of – so real quick for the center, is, is Brooks really a, a step above the other four clearly? Because people, people seem to think that. But when I watch them play, I don't see it really. And then I wonder because Miles Robinson is still in the MLS. John Brooks is playing in the Champions League. Obviously, Chris Richards is at Bayern. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see I don't see a difference in them to warrant Brooks being in the Champions League and Zimmerman and Robinson still being in MLS.
0: I mean, you can look at first of all, look at Nashville's defensive record. They've got, I think, the least goals scored against in the entire league. Mm-hmm or top three, I think. Um, The only reason I know is because I went to the D.C. game the other day, and we didn't score. (laughs) Um, Brooks is fine. He's fine for CONCACAF. But once you have world-renowned strikers going against him, I I genuinely think Zimmerman will hold himself better. Who next? I don't know.
1: Well, the other three are all really young. Well, Robinson's yeah.
0: like Robinson's twenty-two, but the other two are teenagers. So, <laughs> yeah, and I, I personally don't want a teenager as a center back going into a World Cup or even a qualifier. Sorry,
1: yeah,
0: have them I, have them long for training, but absolutely not. No way. We've got enough young players already. We need a solid goalkeeper that's confident in goal, and we need two solid center backs that are confident. So maybe Brooks is the answer because he's a little older and Zimmerman. But
1: I would seem to look, I don't know. We'll see. It, I don't know. <laughs> it, it just, it's, the it's, whole it's conversation makes things, me nervous. It does. It does because there's not really a clear cut. It's like all these guys are kind of at the level where it's like they could be, but maybe not. Maybe. And then like you got guys like Dest who's, he's, he's that kid is talented.
0: He's good, uh, but he's yeah. he's too cocky for his own good. He
1: is. That's why nah. that's that's what playing at Ajax will get you when you're really a winger and then true. because because you play at Ajax they can turn you into a wing back and it's fine. Yep. Uh all right, real it's quick real quick before you go, thoughts on Ricardo Pepe. Overrated. <laughs> Overrated.
0: <laughs> I think he's good. Uh I one, he's I he might win the Golden Boy this year. I, I think he he deserves that. Nowhere near the Boland in, though. I think I haven't seen enough Barcelona. Or sorry, oh. Ricard, whoa, Padre, hold on. Yeah, Ricard, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. the striker. You're good. I think you're he's good. good. U.S. soccer. Yeah. Wow. I was thinking. Um, no, it's good. a guy from Barcelona. Best. No, they're center midfielder. Oh, Pedri. Um, yeah, sorry, Pepe Pedri, close enough. No, you're the good. <laughs> the nine for the U.S. I think he's good. I do think he's a little. I don't want to say overrated, um, because he's scored in big games and big times for us.
1: Mm.
0: I think it's something to be hopeful in, but the U.S. typically lets us down.
1: Of course, all the time. <laughs> but as, in your opinion, as a coach, like this, like when you watch him play the like the runs that he makes the spaces he gets himself into the physical tools that he has the techniques like when you watch are you optimistic or are you this is just another Josie Altador situation type deal like where do you lean on that obviously I want to stay away from to somebody the next whatever because we the U.S. Yeah. typically does that and then it never doesn't usually work out
0: pretty do we'll,
1: yeah yeah exactly the poster child for yeah but as a coach we're we're when you watch him play, what are your thoughts on, on him? Cause there are certain players that you can tell like, Oh, he's always in the right spot or he's always doing that score. He just got, he just happened to get lucky and in tapping, like,
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'll say this. He reminds me in the positions that he finds himself in it as a Wondolowski type. Mm. Um, and again, I'm not going to say that he's a Wondolowski, but I genuinely don't really like how Wondolowski plays. But the dude scores goals, always, and he will always score goals because he's in the right spot in the right time. And frankly, we might need a player just like that for a World Cup because we have most of the other pieces. Um, and I think I would I would say that Pepe is more refined than Wondolowski. Yeah. Um, higher ceiling. I can, yeah, I think he's got a higher ceiling. I think his intelligence for the game is very good. Um, And I think he can do more than just poach. I think he can also be like a false nine and join the midfield and then giving us different opportunities from different angles rather than just standing and (laughs) finding the right place at the right time.
1: Hopefully. Well, on that note, we'll take a little bit of optimism out of your not getting out of the World Cup group stage prediction. Yeah, we'll wrap this up here. No, you're good. We'll wrap this up here. I really appreciate your time. We uh, learned a lot, obviously. Obviously, both of us have been involved in this hockey game for forever, taking slightly different paths. But it's always good to pick the brain of somebody who's, who's in that, especially the professional sort of world. So I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. With that, guys, we'll see you guys next time. Later. Peace.